The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Next Saturday is what, gentlemen? What is next Saturday? Uh, Gentlemen, next Saturday. Remember it. There's a reason why, okay? You've got a sweetie with you today or uh, hopefully and... uh, Make sure you respond accordingly. Don't be like the guy who uh, went to Dillard's and uh, told the lady behind the counter that I'd like some perfume. So she showed him a bottle that cost $75. He said, I was thinking something a little less costly. So she showed him a bottle for $50. He said, that's still more than I'd like to spend. So she brought out a bottle for $25. Finally, he said, what I mean is there's something really cheap that you have. And she held out a mirror and said, there you go. Take care of the lady God has given you, amen? Don't do like the guy who uh, Valentine's Day was coming up and they were arguing about uh, what kind of, they needed a new vehicle, he wanted a new truck, she wanted a new car, she wanted a sports car. Finally, she said, Valentine's Day's coming up, I'd like something that goes zero to 150 in four seconds or less. So on Valentine's Day, he gave her a new bathroom scale. (laughs) Bet that was a happy Valentine's Day in that house. Acts chapter 12. I'm trying to help you guys, just trying to help the men out there, okay? Acts chapter 12, beginning of verse 1. By the way, we had a great time away last week, 300 men in the men's conference. Uh, God worked, God moved, and uh, great speaker. Uh, guys, put in your calendars, take your sons, your son-in-laws, your grandsons, whomever, last week in January every year. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that that met with the approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, put him in prison, handed him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers. Herod intended to bring him out for a public trial after the Passover. Father, I'm sure shockwaves went through the early church as James was killed and Peter was arrested. I'm sure it was a time that uh, froze in the memories of every one of those who heard about it. One of their leaders was gone, and their ultimate leader on earth, anyway, was next. So, Father, as we ask the question, who is our king? Help us to see, understand, and apply to our hearts in Christ's name. Amen. Who's your king? Who is the king of your life? I mean, if you were to honestly answer that question... Who is it that rules over your life? What would your honest answer be? For most of us, the honest answer would be, I am. I make the decisions I want. I go to the place I want, do the things I want. I'm the king of my life. Some of us would say, well, my work is. I mean, I, 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 everything in my life is surrounded by work, and work is really the king of my life. And in fact, my wife or my husband has to tell me to pick the cell phone up at the table because work is my king. For some of you who are honest, your three-year-old is the king of your life, king of your castle. He or she rules it, they dictate it, they're in charge, and it's a scary world for them and for you. Who's the king of your life? Who's the king? As we come to this section of God's word, that's the question we're going to ask ourselves over and over again. Who's our king? Who is it that we serve? Who do we bow to? Who do we order our lives around? Who do we listen to? Who do we respond to? Who do we order our life for? The early church was growing. I, I mean, it was growing exponentially. 
On the day of Pentecost, it says those who accepted his message, that's Peter's message, were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. On the day of Pentecost, we've got 3,000 brand new believers in the streets of Jerusalem. The church is growing exponentially. In Acts 2.47, a little later on in the same chapter, the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. So you've got the 3,000 saved on Pentecost. Every day after that, you have more and more people coming to faith in Jesus. The church is growing exponentially. Acts chapter 6 verse 7, so the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So not only are the people coming to faith, but now the religious hierarchy is coming to faith in Jesus. Christianity is spreading exponentially. These are called progress reports. Through the book of Acts, you find six or seven progress reports of the church growing exponentially. Acts chapter 9 verse 31, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, Samaria, enjoyed a time of peace, were being strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord, encouraged by the Holy Spirit, and the church increased in numbers. The church is growing exponentially. And finally, the passage we're looking at today at the end of the chapter, but the word of God continued to spread and continued to flourish. Over and over again in the book of Acts, what we see is the church is expanding. The church is growing. The church is becoming this exponential force in the world. Not everyone liked that. Not everyone enjoyed the fact that the church was growing. Not everyone was happy to see this take place. The the Romans didn't like it much because these people were bowing to a different king. They were bowing to Jesus. And the Jews didn't like it because they were being rivaled by this new Christian sect that came up. And many of their people were leaving Judaism to turn to Christianity. And so in the midst of what's happening in the first century, the church is growing. But in the passage we had before us, it's seeking to be squashed by Herod. Herod begins persecuting the church to please the Romans and to please the Jews. James is killed. Peter's arrested. His popularity is growing because of his persecution of the church. That's the setting that we find ourselves in in Acts chapter 12. The first attack is very clear. We just read about it. James is killed. In verses 1 and 2, we see that James, the brother of John, is taken and he is killed by the sword. He's the first of the 12 disciples to be martyred. The first martyr of the church was Stephen. He was not part of the disciple band, but he was a faithful follower of Jesus. But the first of the 12 apostles, the first of the 12 disciples who were with Jesus to be murdered was James. In fact, James's death is the only recorded death of any of the 12 apostles in the Word of God, in the New Testament. And so you can imagine the shockwaves that rippled through the church the moment they found out that James is dead. James, the brother of John. James, one of the inner three. In fact, when Jesus would call three aside, he would call Peter, James, and John. When he went into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, he brought with him Peter, James, and John. Now James, one of the early leaders of the church, was dead. He's gone. And not only that, now Herod had also arrested Peter. Things looked bleak and things were getting worse. Shockwaves spread through the first century church. They spread through the first century church. You can imagine one of your leaders is dead. Gone. About a year and a half ago, two years ago, if you read the local newspapers, you know there was a church in Colleen where their pastor, the pastor's wife, executive pastor, had been on a missions trip. They were headed back to Colleen from the Austin airport, uh, lost control of the vehicle, and uh, all three of them lost their lives. Shockwaves rippled through that congregation. Shockwaves. 
maybe you remember, maybe you're a baby boomer, and you, it's like time stood still, like it was frozen. You can remember where you were, who you were with, and what you were doing when you heard these words, the president is dead. When you heard those words, I was, I was in, in the fourth grade monitoring a second grade class, and all of a sudden on the loudspeaker, our principal turned on, turned it loud, and it was on the radio that was broadcasting, which had never happened in our school before. Those are the first words we had. The president heard. The president is dead. Remember where you were if you are a baby boomer? Remember who you were with? Remember what you were doing? Or, or maybe it was the day that Martin Luther King was killed. Maybe you remember when James Earl Ray picked up his rifle and took the life of the great civil rights leader Martin Luther King and it's like time stood still because one of your heroes' life was taken. Then fast forward to another generation, generation of my kids, people in their late 20s and 30s. You remember where you were, who you were with, and what was happening when the Challenger blew up. I I mean, it's like time stood still and it was frozen in your life and and you remember as a, when you were a little kid, you remember where you were and what happened and what was going on around you. And then more recently, for most of us, we remember this day and it burns in our minds, 911. We still use the terminology, the phrase, and as we watched that second plane going into that second tower, it's like time stood still. We knew where we were. Now it's happening in the early church. Maybe you remember when LSU won the last national championship. <laughs> Time stood still. <laughs> Forgot I had that there. Imagine the early church. Word filters down to you. James is dead. Time stands still. You remember where you are. You remember who you're with. That's what happened here. Word is out on the street. James is dead. Peter's arrested. Who's next? Word is on the street. The king has open season on Christians now. The king is after us. The king is trying to destroy us. The king is trying to end Christianity. The, the king is after anyone who's a Christ follower. The, the king is after those who would seek to bow to a different king. And shockwaves rippled through the early church. The king here is Herod. You can see it in verse 1. About that time, Herod the king came. And maybe you don't know much about Herod, but the way things worked in the Roman Empire is that Rome was ruled by the Caesars. The Caesars lived in Rome. They were the kingly clan that ruled over all of Rome. And when they conquered other nations, they would set up puppet kings in these different nations. In the nation of Palestine and the nation of Israel, they set up a family called the Herods. And so the Herods were the runs who ruled over Palestine. They were really, the Caesars were over all of Rome. The Herods were given this one land, the land of Palestine. And so what happened is the Herods would be, they, they, they were really puppet kings who answered to Rome. Now the problem is if you're a Herod, you've got two people to keep happy. You've got the Jews in Israel where you're living and ruling to keep happy, but you also have the Caesars more importantly to keep happy because if the Caesars weren't happy, it was not a good thing. And so you had two constituents to keep happy. First and foremost were the Caesars, the Romans who ruled over you, who gave you the right to rule, who gave you the authority to rule, who funneled money to you, who gave you troops, etc., etc. So you kept the Caesars happy because they were your boss. They were the ultimate kings. But you lived in Israel, and so you had to keep the Jews happy because if the Jews weren't happy, they could have an uprising. The uprising would make Rome look bad, make the Caesars look bad, and you don't want to make Rome look bad, and you don't want to make the Caesars look bad. 
So that's the setting we find ourselves reading about in Acts chapter 12. James is dead. Peter's arrested. There's trouble everywhere. Although God is almighty, he does not prevent the untimely deaths of some of his choicest servants. But when I read chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, one of my conclusions is, although God is almighty, although God is sovereign, although he is king, although he is ruler, there is times when he does not prevent the untimely death of some of his choicest servants. Some of you know the story of Jim Elliott as he went to the Aka Indians with four other men and the five of those men lost their lives on the beaches of Ecuador back in the 1950s. Young men in their 20s seeking to take the gospel to an unknown people. I had uh, two friends with me who passed away in their early 30s coming out of Dallas Seminary. Recently, one of the profs at Dallas Seminary in his 40s leading the doctorate of ministry program, brain tumor, passes away, I think at age 42. Sometimes, although God is almighty, he takes some of his choicest servants home at an early age. James is gone. Stephen is gone. These choice servants of God, their life has ended. Some people look at that and they say, what kind of God is that? He must be impotent. He must not be the true, powerful king. Because a good king, a powerful king, a mighty king would prevent those things from happening to his people. I love the answer that one pastor gives to that from Flagstaff, Arizona. Pastor Stephen Cole, we must always interpret our circumstances by God's love, not God's love by our circumstances. We must always, let me repeat that. We must always interpret our circumstances by God's love for us, not God's love by our circumstances. See, oftentimes we do the opposite. Difficult things come into our life. Suffering comes in our life. Trial comes in our life. And we shake our fists at God and say, God, if you really love me, why would you let this happen? God, if you really care for me, if you are really the king, why would you let this enter my life? Why would you let this enter my world? I mean, when we look around our world, we see evil in many fronts. I mean, we see it everywhere from ISIS to Boko Haram to Taliban to Al-Qaeda. And there are times we wonder, is God just impotently sitting in a corner instead of ruling from his throne in heaven? Is God just watching all this and why is he not protecting his people? Why doesn't God do something? I was watching talk television a couple of weeks ago and that was a question that was before everybody. If you believe in a God that's so strong, why does your God not do something? how do you answer that question? You're part of the first century church. One of your key leaders is dead. The leader of the early church, Peter, is about to be killed. So if your God is the king and your God is so strong and your God is mighty, like the song we just sang, if those things are true, why do you have folks like, uh, like, like ISIS beheading people all over the world and your God not doing anything about it? And why do you have people in Nigeria, Christians in Nigeria, being, being defeated and taken away and massacred by, by, other, by, by Muslim people? Why does that happen? Where's your God? Where's his power? Is he passively watching or is he, is he totally impotent? Where is he? When wicked seems to rule and the righteous begin to suffer, is he really a king? Is he really all-powerful? 
when James is taken to prison and beheaded, and Peter is next in line on death row, it seems like a king is trumping the king. We've all had trials in life. When your daughter comes to you and says, Dad, I've missed my period and think I'm pregnant. You wonder, where's God? Your son comes and says, Dad, Mom, I, I want you to know I'm attracted to someone of the same sex. And you wonder, where's God? Or maybe your spouse came to you and said, you know, never loved you, never did. I'm out of here. Where was God? Or maybe the doctor looks at you and says, I don't know how to tell you this, but there's nothing else we can do for you. Where's God? Where's the king of the universe in the midst of these things? Is he infinitely sitting on his throne, unable to do anything? Is he passively standing by, just watching? A number of years ago, Bev wrote an article entitled, Where Was God? She based it upon an encounter we had with some dear friends of ours. We went to seminary together, and these dear friends went to a country in Africa to serve Liberia, and they served for several years, and Liberia was struck in civil war. They had to flee the country. He became an area representative for uh, that mission agency in the Northeast. They had two sons and a daughter. Our kids played together when they were first born in Dallas, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, when their daughter became a teenager, they'd been back in the States for, a number, for several years, and Daughter became a teenager, about 18, she began acting out, and through counseling, et cetera, they found out that ever since she was six years old, she was repeatedly abused by an older cousin. They would come back from furlough as missionaries. They would stay in this area, and that cousin would abuse the little girl. So Bev wrote an article, Where Was God? Faithful couple, loved Jesus, honored Jesus, served Jesus, The mom led the moms in touch prayer group for kids in school. The dad is as good a dad as I've ever met. Loved their kids, honored Christ with their lives. Where was Jesus? Where was the king? Where's the king when ISIS beheads people? Where's the king when James is thrown into prison? Where's the king when the sword is stuck through James's body? Where's the king when Peter is there? And we have to say there are times when the king of the universe, the king, our God, the almighty one, allows some of his choicest servants to be taken early. Stephen is taken early. James is taken early. Where's the king? Where's the king? Well, interesting what happens here. The the, the church gathers together. They got petitions together. They got protests together. They armed themselves with weaponry. And they went after the king. Is that what happened? Look what happens. Beginning in verse 5, it says, So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. The evangelical church of the 21st century has a lot to learn from our brothers and sisters in the 1st century. When, when, they, when they met an obstacle that they could not overcome... The first thing they did, not their last resort, but their first resort was to pray. When they heard what happened to James and Peter was in prison and they were expecting for him to die, they were expecting for him to be killed, what happened next is they began to pray. 
They called upon God. They used the greatest power that was available to them, and that was prayer. Now, here's the multi-million dollar question. Do we believe that? Do we believe the greatest power available to us today is prayer? I suggest to you, we don't live that way. See, when struggles come our way, first thing we do is try and outthink it. Uh, we, we try and fix it somehow. We try and resolve it somehow. We try and overcome it somehow. We use our brains. We use our intellects. We seek counsel from other people rather than pray. And, and when struggles come our way or struggles come to us as a nation, what, what we want to do is we want to get the right person in the right house and the right people in Congress and the right people in legislature, and then we can solve all the problems that way. I'm going to submit to you that the solution of the first century is the solution of the 21st century. We can't fix earthly problems with earthly things. We can only fix earthly problems with spiritual things. That is the gospel. And so what we do is we live our lives and we wring our hands and we say, God must be impotent. God must not be in control. Things are not good. Look at the way the world has gone. We've got to elect the right people, put the right people in the right positions, in the right places, and everything will be okay. Really? You believe that? You really believe that? But the evangelical church, I'm afraid, has bought a bill of goods and we're trying to fix spiritual problems with earthly solutions. The issue is the gospel. Last weekend, all the men that were away, we heard a series of messages. The gospel, uh, the gospel is center. It's excellent. You see, you tell me what the solution for violence in the world is. More education? You think there's going to be no more violence? You tell me what the solution for poverty in the world is. More jobs? Really? Uh, you, you tell me what the solution is for race, racial reconciliation. You see, when people come to faith in Christ and they bow their knee before the Savior and their hearts are right before him, they're going to be right with everybody else no matter what color they are. And, and when you bow your knee before the Savior and you walk with the Savior, you're going to do everything you can to work hard, supply people with jobs, and, and pay people well if you own businesses, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The solution to the problems we have here are found the same place that the first century church found the solutions. And that solution is in the gospel. It's turning to Christ. And so the first thing they do is pray. They pray. Peter's in prison. James is dead. Let's pray. Today, Peter's in prison. James is dead. Let's scream and holler. Let's go to find some reporter. Let's get it publicized. Let's go get petitions. Let's go arm ourselves. Let's do something. And, and I'm not saying those things are wrong. Those things, we've got a government where you can do those things. But recognize prayer and turning to Christ and the gospel is not the last resort. It's the first resort. Amen? I listened to a series, a sermon by Tony Evans yesterday. Our staff, it was sent to us and I listened to it. I mean, he hit the nail right on the head with this. It's perfect. He's, and, and he, he's saying, I, I was, I, he'd spoken at a church in New York City. I went to New York City, and I was speaking at the church, and as I was there, they put me up in the Times Square Marriott, the Marriott overlooking Times Square. And he said, I had a great stay there. And then I had to catch a plane and go to Chicago, and I went to Chicago, and they put me in the Hilton. He said, I got to go up to the 35th floor. When I got to the 35th floor, I pulled out the key, and I stuck it on the door, and the door didn't open. You ever have that experience in a hotel? What do you say? Praise God from whom all blessings flow? 
I mean, he said, I traveled all day to get there. It was cold. I was hungry. I was tired. I wanted to get my room, put my luggage in and go get something to eat. He said, I tried it again. It didn't work. I tried it a third time. It didn't work. Then I'm thinking, do I take my luggage all the way down? Somebody can steal it, leave in the hallway. And he said, I left it there, taking my chances. I went down to the thing and I told the gentleman down there, very nice to him. I said, uh, sir, my key does not work. And he said, Dr. Evans, let me see your key. So I handed him my key and he said, Dr. Evans, this key will never work here. This is a Marriott key. This is the kingdom of Hilton. It's the kingdom of Hilton. A Marriott key will never work in a Hilton. It's not going to happen, Dr. Evans. So he said, I sheepishly pulled the other key out of my pocket, the right key to the door to get in. And his whole point was, it's exactly what we do in the world today. I'd already prepared this message. It was done. And I'm listening to the sermon yesterday. And that's what we try and do too. We try and take the keys of the earth and use to resolve earthly issues that way rather than with spiritual things. And in Matthew 16, Jesus says, I'm going to build my church and the keys of the kingdom are yours to use. Which keys are you using? First century church used the keys of the kingdom. They turned to prayer. They turned to prayer. Now, the next few verses, if you don't laugh at these verses, you just don't. I don't, you don't have something. I don't know what you don't have. You, you need to go take a joy pill or something. I don't know. On that very night, verse 6, when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sound asleep between two soldiers. He was bound with two chains. There were guards in front of the door. They were watching over prison. So Peter's not gone anywhere. Herod knows that Peter has been released from prison by an angel before, and so he puts guards all over the place. He's going to make sure that Peter is well guarded. So he's sound asleep, and uh, it's one of those episodes. How many of you have preschools or elementary kids? Let me see your hands. You know what it's like to wake them up in the morning, and they're kind of in that twilight zone, and they don't know. Or, or let's do it this way: How many of you have been there before? I mean, you, you kind of—I'm not sure if I'm awake, I'm asleep. It's kind of like it's this nebulous state of being, and that's where Peter is. I, I mean, look at what it says: Behold, an angel, verse seven, suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. So there's a light in the cell, and he struck Peter's side. When, ladies, when do you hit your husband in the side? At night, when you can't wake him up, or he's snoring so loud you want to move over. I, I mean, he, Peter is sound asleep. He's so sound asleep, there's a bright light coming, and he's not even awake yet. So the angel is popping Peter in the ribs. That's what it says right there. He struck him in the side. He's trying to wake Peter up. Peter is, I mean, he's on death row, but he's knocked out. He, he is sound asleep. So what happens next? Well, he, he looks at him, and, and Peter is so groggy, he doesn't know what to do. He's looking at him, if it's real, not real. So the angel said, it's like talking to a first grader. Get up quickly. The chains fell off his hands. The angel had, he had tell him everything. Peter, gird yourself. Peter, put on your sandals. Sounds like a mama talking to a first grader on a school morning, doesn't it? I mean, get your clothes on, get your shoes on, hurry up, get out the door. The bus is coming. You're going to be late. But Peter, you're in prison trying to get away. And so he says in verse 8, again, the angel said to him, Peter, gird yourself. Peter's in his skivvies and he won't put his robe on. He didn't know what's going on. Peter, you can't go on the streets of Jerusalem in your underwear. That's really what he's saying. Peter, get dressed. And so he did. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Peter, we got to get moving. So he went out, continued to follow him, didn't know what was being done by the angel, whether it was real or he was seeing a vision. The end of verse 9, underline your Bible. Here's Peter. 
He's getting up and the angel's got to pop him in the ribs to wake him up. Peter, get up, get dressed, put your sandals on. Peter, we got to get out. We're in prison. They're going to come after us, Peter. And when they passed the first gate, or first and second guard, they came to an iron gate. Well, what do you do if you're in an iron gate? All of a sudden, it's like somebody had a remote control and the gate just pops open. This is before remote controls are available, by the way. And so it opened up before them. They went out. They went along one street. Immediately, the angel departed from him. And when Peter came to himself, I love that statement in verse 11. Finally, Peter gets it. Finally, Peter came to him. Up until now, he's not sure, is this real? Is it not real? I, I'm in the twilight zone. I, I, told, I shared with you one time, uh, uh, I don't know, four or five years ago, Christmas time, we were up at, uh, in, in Dallas at the Gaylord with our grandkids and uh, daughter and son-in-law. And so we, we got adjoining rooms and we put the four kids to bed and we stayed up and talked. And then when we got ready for bed, we kind of scattered one kid to each bed, one adult in each bed. And so I had uh, Jackson in bed with me and about 2 o'clock in the morning, I felt, bam! I mean, just a slap in my face. Well, 2 o'clock in the morning, and my eyes pop open, and here, right nose to nose to me is my grandson Jackson. And he screams at me, you know my daddy? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if you slug him, if you, what do you do? I mean, you know, I mean, you scared me to death. I said, Jackson, it's okay. I'm not your daddy. It's Papa Doe. Go back to sleep. Boom. Put his head down and he's gone. (laughs) I just sat there for the next three hours looking at him. (laughs) But you had experiences like that. That's where Peter is. Peter said, is this real? Is it not real? I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's going on here. Peter, get your coat on. Peter, get your shoes on. Peter, we got to get out of here. The gate's open. And finally it says, Peter came to himself. And he realized he's out in the streets of Jerusalem. Peter is now, he's safely out of the prison. He realized, look at verse 11, that the Lord had sent an angel to rescue him from the hand of Herod and from everything the Jewish people were expecting. What were the Jewish people expecting? They're expecting him to be martyred like James had been martyred. They expected him to be killed just as James had been killed. But now Peter was free. The story gets funnier. So all the time, you've got a prayer meeting going on. And Peter remembered that the early church was praying for him in John Mark's house. must have been a big house. It says many people, verse 12, were praying for him. So Peter makes it. He books it to John Mark's house. He gets there, and he's knocking at the door. There's a servant girl who comes to answer it. When she recognized Peter's voice, verse 14, because of the great joy she had, she didn't open the gate. (laughs) The angel opened the gates. He gets out. The servant girl hears Peter's voice. Peter's knocking at the door. She runs back into the prayer meeting. When she ran the prayer meeting, scriptures don't say this. I imagine what she heard is, God, please release Peter. God, please protect Peter. God, we've lost James. We can't lose Peter too. God, you broke Peter out one time. Break him out another time. So she walks into the room where they're praying like that. And she announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. And they said to her, our prayers have been answered. What did they say to her? Say in your Bible. Look at verse 15. You're out of your mind. Peter can't be here. Lord, bring Peter to us. Lord, protect Peter. Here's poor Peter banging on the door. It was harder for him to break into a prayer meeting than to break out of prison. I mean, if you don't laugh at this, you don't laugh at anything. I mean, here's poor Peter standing outside, banging. He's finally dressed. And nobody's going to let him in. 
<laughs> it's just great. You're out of your mind. It's his angel. His angel. Showed you the first century church theology. They believed in angels. Uh, they believed in more than that. They believed in the resurrection. Maybe it's his ghost. But Peter continued knocking. When they opened the door, they saw him. And they were amazed. They were amazed. You know, there, there are a lot of lessons we can learn just in that little section right there. Let me, let me just do two, two lessons. Two quick lessons from that section. Lesson number one. Since God is almighty, he can easily deliver his servants from humanly impossible situations if it's his will. You know, we said with James, sometimes the almighty God allows his choice of servants to be taken early. This is just the opposite. The almighty God can deliver whomever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, because he's the king. Some of you have been there. You've been in an impossible marriage, but God resurrected it. You had a health situation that you thought you would never overcome, but he did it. You, you had an addiction that you knew would take you, go with you to the grave, but by his grace, you've overcome it. You had a broken relationship and a family. You thought it could never be mended, and God mended it. You've seen God do the impossible. You've experienced him doing the impossible. You thought your heart would, was broken and could never be mended or healed, and he's healed that broken heart. He's the God of the impossible. Since God is almighty, he can easily deliver his servants from humanly impossible situations if it's his will. Second application, or second observation, often we pray like these people. We pray without believing. Guilty right here. We often pray without really believing. God released Peter. God sent Peter to his, God spared Peter's life. Peter's knocking at the door. Rhoda comes in. It's Peter. It can't be. You're crazy. You ever pray like that? Back in the Dust Bowl, there was a little town outside of Topeka, Kansas. If you remember the Dust Bowl, people are dying. There'd been no rain for two years. The, the, the little town called for a citywide prayer meeting. And so the whole little town's going to show up for a prayer meeting. Four o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. One eight-year-old girl showed up with an umbrella. Let's go pray for rain. One eight-year-old girl brought an umbrella. One. It was a great story. I, I guess it's true. I've had it in my cards for a long time. I've used it a few times. It's a story of a, uh, a, a little town that was getting its first tavern. Story told of a man who got a permit to open the first tavern in a small town. The members of local churches strongly opposed to the bar, so they began to pray that God would intervene. They actually had a prayer, citywide prayer meeting for that. A few days later, the tavern was scheduled to open. A few days later, before the tavern was scheduled to open, lightning hit the building and burned it to the ground. There was celebration in the churches that Sunday. The next week, though, the next week, though, there was a problem. The tavern owner was suing the churches. He contended that it was their prayers that were responsible for the burning of the building. They denied the charge. At the conclusion of the preliminary hearing, the judge wryly remarked, at this point, I don't know what my decision will be, but it seems that the tavern owner believes in the power of prayer more than the church people do. <laughs> Ever felt like that? I mean, God, would you, would you, would you, God, will you, will you, will you, and then... 
We don't believe. We don't believe. I've been asked this question a thousand times in the last two years. Gary, are you healed? I don't know. I don't know. Medically, there's no way to know that. Do I believe God can heal me? You bet I do. He's in the business of resurrection, the business of healing. One day I will be healed, I can tell you that. It may be the other side of glory, but it may be now. I don't know. But do I believe he can? Yes. A thousand times yes. Maybe here, maybe there, but it's going to happen. Do you believe? Do you believe? I, I mean, here these guys are, and look at what happens. Well, the king, or a king, is mad at the king. So verses 18 and 19, he has everybody killed. He, 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 now when there's just no small disturbance among the soldiers rose up uh, because of what happened to Peter. So Herod searched for him, couldn't find him. He examined the guards and he ordered them to be executed. And the next thing that happens is another counterattack. Peter is freed by prayer, but, but then Herod is killed by God. Look at verse uh, 20. It says the people of Tyre and Sidon came down, and on a point of day, verse 21, Herod sat in, the royal, in his royal apparel, took a seat in the rostrum, began to deliver an address, and the people began to cry out, the voice of a God, not of man. And so Josephus is interesting. Josephus is a Jewish historian, not a Christian. And Josephus likes to write of gory events. And he writes of this particular event. And he describes the way that Herod was dressed. He was in a silver robe so that the sun would reflect off of him so he would look like a god. And then he begins to speak and his voice is like a god. And the people cry out, it's not the voice of a man, it's a god. And he began to receive the accolades of God. And when you claim to be God and you go against the real God, look at what happens to him in verse 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and he died. Josephus tells us five days later he was dead. Yeah, let, let me make one remark here. I hear people say, well, I love the God of the New Testament, not the God of the Old Testament, because the God of the Old Testament is a God who judged people and a God who killed people. I would say if you were Herod, you would say he's a God who judged people and killed people. He's no different. The God of the Old Testament is the same God in the New Testament. You ask Ananias and Sapphira if God still judged people. They made a pledge to give their property to the church. They held back some of the proceeds. And when they held back some of the proceeds, they were both struck dead. I told you that's one of the reasons we don't do pledges at TBC. I don't want you dying because of pledges. <laughs> and, 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 and the result of all this, what, what's the result of it? The result of it is a king could not stop the king because you look at the end of this chapter in Acts and it says in verse 24, but there's a contrast there. Luke, what are you saying? He's saying Herod tried to stop the church. He didn't like the growth in the church. He's trying to please the Romans. He's trying to please the Jews. But the word of God continued to grow. The word of God continued to multiply. Great things were happening in the church. <clears throat> it was happening. Our sovereign king rules over everything. Who's your king? At the beginning of Acts 12, we've got James dead, Peter in prison, and the tyrant Herod basking in popularity and power. At the end of the chapter, we have Peter free, Herod dead, and the word of God growing and multiplying. Peter is showing us if you oppose the gospel, you may win victories temporarily, but ultimately you lose. If you stand for the gospel, you may temporarily lose, but you eternally win. Since God is almighty, no force can stop the spread of the gospel. Who's your king? Who's your king? Who are you serving today? Who rules your life? Who's the king that you bow before? 
Let's get honest for a second. For some of you, if you were honest, Gary, I'm the king of my life. I do what I want, what I want, how I want. I bow my knee to no one. Work is my king. Pleasure is my king. Sex is my king. Money is my king. My family is my king. It's Jesus your king. Is he? Herod thought he could go up against Christ and he loses. Same thing happens to us. Our sovereign king rules over everything. That's my king. Is he yours? Thank you, Father. Thank you for being the king that rules over all. Thank you for a savior who rules over all. Thank you for being the sovereign king over all. Some of us need to confess this morning, Lord God, I have allowed blank to be my king. I confess that and I ask you to help me turn from that. I repent of that. I'm tired of trying to control my own life. I'm tired of being controlled by my pursuit of blank. You fill in that blank. I submit to you as my king. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the king over everything. In your name, amen.